Hello, welcome to Theory Lab. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Cotter of the American Cancer Society's Research Department here with my friend, Dr. Susanna Greer. Hey, Joe. So you spoke with Dr. Joanna Burdett at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, really big fan of her work. She built this really cool, she and some colleagues built this in, incredibly cool 3D model of a female reproductive system that you're about to hear all about. Um, that and other things. She is the Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Programs at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's also a professor of medicinal chemistry and here's a new word I just learned, pharmacognosy. Do you know what that is? I didn't. <laughs> well, this, I do now. It's the study of plants or other natural sources as a possible source of drugs. So that's part of what she focuses on. Her lab's interested in, in well, women's health. Uh, she and her lab integrate imaging, drug discovery, microfluidics, and basic biology to try and understand how and where ovarian cancers originate. But Susanna, maybe it's not just, maybe it shouldn't even be called ovarian cancer? Right. I mean, Joe, this was just a super fun and informative conversation. So did you ever watch Tom and Jerry as a yep. kid? Of course, yeah. All right. So, you know, they were always up to their antics and... Tom was always pulling something on Jerry and vice versa. And I just remember there was this one cartoon where Jerry had like, he had hidden different things in different rooms and poor Tom, he had, and he had a string that went from room to room to room. And Tom kept thinking he was going to like go follow the string. He was running it through his hands and he was going to find, um, you know, Jerry and then he'd get to the den and it wasn't there and he'd get going and he'd go to the kitchen and go to the bathroom. And so, my conversation with Joanna had last night, it really had me thinking about this cartoon because she she and her colleagues have made some pretty amazing observations that ovarian cancer at its onset is likely not in the ovary at all, but instead in the fallopian tube. Um, it was just a mind-boggling conversation about the onset of cancer, um, why fallopian tubes may have the right environmental conditions to give rise to ovarian cancer, and just a really beautiful story that she told as we were able to backtrack through the scientific literature um, where we've known for quite a while that the more aggressive the surgical excision is for ovarian cancer, meaning the more of the reproductive tract that is removed, oftentimes the better the outcome. So those kind of early observations led Joanna and her team um, to really this kind of pulling the string and going through different rooms, uh, just like Tom, to find out where is this cancer starting? And obviously, once we know that, we can begin to think about different therapeutics for what is, um, unfortunately, still a pretty scary disease. We've made a lot of progress in ovarian cancer, but we have an awfully long way to go. And good grief, I am just grateful for folks like Joanna who are focused on it. She was amazing. All right. Thanks so much, Susanna. Let's get to it. Hey, Joanna, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. All right. So your lab is really looking at lots of different aspects of ovarian cancer, but I would really like to set the stage for our listeners. Could you just kind of maybe describe ovarian cancer? What makes it challenging, unique? Um, and then we'll talk more specifically about what you're up to. 
Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So ovarian cancer actually is not one thing. Um, it's somewhat of an umbrella term that describes a variety of different cancers that can come from the female reproductive tract. So the type of ovarian cancer that my lab really focuses on is a specific one that's called high-grade serous ovarian cancer, and it's the most common one. So one of the interesting things that scientists, including myself, have been working on over the last decade is the idea that these high-grade serous ovarian cancers don't actually come from the ovary, but actually come from the fallopian tube instead. And so that's really profound for research because, you know, if we start to have a major discovery where we can diagnose ovarian cancer early, and then we want to, say, surgically remove tissue to protect a woman, and you took the ovary, and it actually came from the fallopian tube, you would have essentially done nothing to protect that woman. Similarly, if you try to develop a new imaging strategy to detect lesions or cancer really early, and you were shining that light, let's say, on the ovary instead of the fallopian tube, you could miss everything. And even more importantly, if we try to find new drugs that treat ovarian cancer, but we're comparing cancer to the wrong type of normal cell, we might miss really important drug targets. So this has been, I think, a very important um, idea that's uh, permeated the field and one that we've really tried to work on extensively in my lab. So that is, okay, first off, I think that most people will have no idea that that's the case. So that's really interesting. Secondly, let's maybe take a step back for those of us who don't think about the female anatomy all the time. Can you sure. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about what's going on? Tell us about fallopian tubes in general, and then maybe we'd love to hear a little bit about your specific angle into this, uh, quite frankly, really fascinating and impactful area of research. Yeah, well, so... Um, Obviously, the female reproductive system is super important for the preservation of our species, and every month the ovary releases an egg, which then, if it meets with a sperm, is fertilized and becomes an embryo. And so that egg, if it's going to become fertilized, travels from the ovary to the fallopian tube, and it goes down the fallopian tube, and fertilization actually occurs there. And then if an embryo forms, it rolls into the uterus where it implants and would and develop into a fetus. So the fallopian tube was kind of, after the advent of in vitro fertilization, where it was uncovered that you could actually get life in a dish without the fallopian tube, a lot of people really didn't research it much anymore. And it was only in the last decade or so when people were looking in high-risk um, women, women who were at high risk of developing ovarian cancer, and they started to notice that when they would take these tissues out before women got cancer, they wouldn't really see um, these sort of like early cancer lesions in the ovary, but instead they started to identify what looked to be early cancer in the fallopian tube. And it had been known for a long time that a more radical surgery, taking more tissue instead of just the ovary, taking most of the reproductive tissue, had a better outcome for women. So it was really the persistence of scientists looking at these additional tissues that uncovered that there might be an alternative source, the fallopian tube, this other part of the female reproductive tract. And that's kind of what set the stage for further investigation into that area. And for us, the anatomy of that is actually really quite interesting because it suggests that maybe it's possible to even sample. Um, it's an open tunnel that goes both ways. So is it possible that that's an alternative way to find cancer early, is actually looking in the secretions that would come out of the vagina and that that would be a local or, you know, 
proximal source to the tumor that would actually have more sensitivity and improve early detection. So that's been kind of a, a way that this hypothesis and this theory of the um, fallopian tube has started to change the field. Oh, it's fascinating because we always hear that one of the big challenges with ovarian cancer is that it's often, not always, but often detected at a fairly late stage. So that's, tell me more about what you, well, I guess I have two questions. Why is the fallopian tube a place where cancer may originate? <laughs> I'd be interested to hear more about that. And then I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on early detection and where we're moving in that direction. Those are great questions. So the first question is why would cancer, why would it start there? And really we don't completely know that. Um, you know, one of the few things that we know about ovarian cancer um, is that the lifetime number of ovulations, so how many times eggs burst out of the ovary, is associated with the risk of getting ovarian cancer. And really the most compelling data that supports that is that women who are on birth control pills, which blocks ovulation, are protected against ovarian cancer. And probably the second best piece of evidence comes from the fact that women who have more pregnancies which also blocks ovulation, are also protected. So then it starts to ask the question, well, what does ovulation do to the fallopian tube, right? So we had all these theories about what ovulation did to the ovary and how that would potentially change the ovary to form cancer. But now that there's this whole notion that it comes from the fallopian tube, which is right next to the ovary, and in fact, the place that tends to look like it's getting cancer earlier are these little fingertips of the fallopian tube that touch the ovary. So it gives us a, a clue that this space in between the tips of the fallopian tube and the ovary is a spot where things that can cause cancer might accumulate. And so that's one of the things my lab is really actively working on is what is it about ovulation and what is happening at the interface between the ovary and the fallopian tube that might be tumorigenic. And we have several theories on that we can talk about. But the other question you asked me about was early detection. It is the holy grail still of this field. As you said, there are no early detection strategies for ovarian cancer, and this has really created, I think, one of the biggest issues with um, survival. So, you know, when you don't find cancer at an early time point, then there's much more tumor to deal with, so to be surgically removed, and in the case of ovarian cancer, it is often widely disseminated within the, um, the belly or the peritoneal cavity, as we think of it scientifically. So, you know, that's what causes a lot of the death is this late detection. And even though there's been a lot of research and strategies attempted to find ovarian cancer early, none of them have had the sensitivity and the specificity to do this in a way that we wouldn't accidentally be doing surgery on too many patients and also missing some patients. So part of it is it's buried in the belly. It's not on the surface of the skin or something that you could touch or, or self-diagnosed very easily, and so it's really contributed to this problem. So any strategy for early detection is, is kind of considered the holy grail in the field. Thanks, Joanna. It sounds like you were awfully close to that holy grail. Um, let's talk about we're that just, pathway. One of them in teams. <laughs> I hope so. So I think one of the things that our listeners find really interesting are the tools that scientists use to make some of these really fantastic discoveries. And quite frankly, just understanding that ovarian cancer may not actually originate in the ovary will be a fundamental new piece of knowledge for many listeners today. But 
can you tell us a little bit, I mean, your lab is widely known for having some really wonderful mouse models that you use. And I think you've also built a 3D model. So one of the things I'd love to hear you talk more about are the systems that you've used to make some of these discoveries and on which some of your hypotheses are based. Could you just maybe describe them a little bit so that we could have a better understanding of the tools that you use to, to make some of these pretty incredible advances? Sure, I would, I'll do my best to describe them and, and make them sound interesting. So um, what we do in the lab is often try to grow the cells that cancers originate from or the tumor cells themselves. And um, so for example, we wanted to know um, how this monthly process of ovulation and normal reproductive function could potentially be tumor initiating in the fallopian tube. And one of the tools that we've been developing that we are now leveraging to answer that question is what's called a microfluidic device. And so the idea here is basically that tissues in the body, they're constantly getting new nutrients, oxygen, and they're having the waste carried away by the vascular system. And so in the laboratory, we actually tend to grow things more in a dish where we would put, say, this um, this substance on it, which we call media, which is filled with nutrients, but the cells are kind of sitting there almost in their own metabolic waste until we change that. And so the idea with a microfluidic system is that you actually have liquid being pumped through the tissue constantly, either underneath it or on top of it, um, or literally through it, depending on what kind of device and what type of tissue you're working with. And so in our system, we had that kind of under overarching concept that we would have perfusion or liquid pumping through that. And that, what that allows to happen is really fascinating. One is the cells, especially cells that are not by themselves but around multiple types of cells, more organized like a tissue, they actually respond biologically much more like they would in the human body. So it's much more of a physiologically natural or normal effect. And then the other thing that we actually saw is that we could integrate the interaction between multiple tissues and really achieve some interesting biology. So we were able to put together, for example, the ovary and the fallopian tube. And this would not have been possible without Teresa Woodruff at Northwestern University, who has pioneered for years ways of growing ovaries and follicles, and as well as Draper Laboratories in Boston, who's been the company that's developed these devices for us that we've used in collaboration with them. So really this team was able to put those together um, and because the tissues are perfused, they live longer and because they're interacting, they behave more like they would in the body. And that's then allowed us a system where we can actually look at the 28-day female reproductive cycle as it's interacting with the fallopian tube. You know, I've, I'm just blown away. I, I love, first of all, that I, one of the things I've heard about you and read about you is that you are very gracious with your time and that you are an easy person to work with. And so I love hearing how you've used the expertise and technologies of your collaborators and other individuals in the field to build, build these really fantastic systems. I mean, these are incredibly impressive. I want to play a game with you. You're going to be an unwitting, unwilling contestant. Probably no, it'll be fine. But I love to know from our scientists kind of best and worst. So okay. like what is the, and we'll start with the worst. Like if you think about what's been maybe your worst day as a scientist or the worst kind of setback that you were just like, 
how are we going to recover from this? And then you obviously have because you're doing some amazing things. And then on the flip side, we'll, the second question will be a high note. Um, what's been the best? What's been like an observation or a finding or a collaboration that you were like, this is the best thing that could have happened? Because I think it's really interesting for our audience to hear that uh, scientists are just like everybody else in every other job. We have setbacks, uh, we have struggles, but we also have some really some moments of absolute just joy. So let's let's start from the the bad first. Can you tell us what's been something that's been a setback for you? Well, I think one of the things you learn as a scientist is to be persistent. And as a junior scientist, a lot of people told me to grow a thick skin um, or have a short memory. And um, I, I don't know if I have a thick skin or a short memory, but I have tried over time to let things not sit with me as long as they used to. Um, it's definitely difficult. So nowadays, what gets me down is not things that happen to me, but things that happen to my trainees. Um, if they apply for an award and don't get it, or if they have a paper rejected, for me, it's just another day, and I've been through it, and I know it'll be okay, but it's hard to watch them suffer through that for the first couple of times. Right. Um, on the flip side, um, you know, you do have really great days. And I actually just got back from a conference, and I gave a talk on some of my research. And afterwards, um, I was approached by Dr. Susan Horowitz, who's actually a National Academy member. And she is the woman who discovered the mechanism of action for Taxol, which is a chemotherapeutic use agent used as frontline therapy for ovarian cancer and a variety of other tumor types. And she said some really nice things to me that will stay with me for a long time. That's amazing. That's fantastic to get those accolades from people that you've revered as being just the you know, forerunners in your field. So congratulations. That's a Thank great- Thank you. No, I was blown away. I'm still smiling from thinking about it. <laughs> you need to write it down on your wall so that when you have those those not so great days, you can remember. It's all it's all worth it. So you, you made a really interesting comment about how your the struggles of your trainees they feel like your own. I mean they feel like your children. And when you talk about your trainees, I'm assuming you're talking about graduate students and postdocs, uh, maybe even assistant professors who may work in your lab. Um, I'd like to know your feeling about what I, I feel like is a, it's both a privilege, but it's also a responsibility of training that next generation of scientists. What are your thoughts on that and how do you approach it? It's one of the things I take probably the most seriously about my job, just because, you know, if I have a limited lifespan and science sometimes moves a little bit more slowly than you would want it to, and you really are betting on the fact that if you train people, they'll carry on and, and that at least they will make the discovery um, or they will make another big breakthrough in another area, or they'll creatively think about the problem in a way that you didn't think about it. So I take, uh, I'm very heavily involved in mentoring, and I um, have been part of a lot of different mentoring efforts on, at the University of Illinois in Chicago for, as you mentioned, um, assistant professors, postdocs, graduate students, undergrads, high school students, you name it. <laughs> We've had them in the lab trying to educate them on how to do experiments. But really, I think one of the main things we try to teach people when they come through the lab is to communicate science to the general public. Because it's part of the problem is 
getting everyone to understand how hard people work and how seriously they take it and how long it takes and why discovery fails sometimes and how important the funding agencies are for the success of things, how important patient advocates are, and just activism in the field. And if we as scientists never communicate to the public why what we're doing is important, they will um, have no faith in what we're doing and it will things, progress will slow. So for us, that's, and for me, in my training, that's one of the things I try to emphasize. You know, I think it's, it's great that you're taking the long view because you're right our individual contributions will end at some point, but your contributions can live indefinitely by those that you train and the folks that are in your lab who become interested in ovarian cancer because of you. So it's a really wonderful legacy to lead. And I, I love that you're helping them to understand the importance of talking about what they do uh, to their family and friends and being proud of it and excited about it because it's really the way to get our uh, communities around us, um, knowledgeable and excited about science. So you mentioned funding, and uh, you are not currently, because you're all grown up now, uh, the American Cancer Society funded you at an earlier stage of your career. And as you know, one of the uh, focuses that the ACS has is in launching the careers of new investigators. We feel like that's an important inflection point when we can really help the individuals. We want the best and the brightest scientists um, to be in cancer research, quite frankly. So could you share with us, was there a way that ACS funding impacted your career? Oh, so many ways. Um, yeah, so getting the American Cancer Society Research Scholar Grant is a big deal. It's a big deal for your self-esteem because you realize that your ideas have merit scientifically. It's a big deal for your lab because it allows you to bring new people on that you can have do experiments, test your hypotheses, and of course train to be the next generation. It's a big deal for you to stay as a scientist and keep your job because everyone around you sort of recognizes how prestigious it is to have one of those. And for me personally, you know, the American Cancer Society grant that I got was specifically to work on developing these three-dimensional culture systems of the fallopian tube and the ovary and to start to test the question of which cells were most likely to be the ones that formed ovarian cancer, the type that we work on. And, you know, that, that funding source really was, you know, the impetus to my current career. And, and it really got me going in terms of being able to be a leader in that specific area. So... Um, the American Cancer Society, and I've continued to try to work as much as I can, you know, um, reviewing grants for them now, um, participating in some of their outreach programs in order to, to try and just give a small thank you back for the immense, immense boost that this, that grant gave to my career. That's awesome to hear. We are always excited. Um, I think one of the best things that the American Cancer Society does is to really choose the most outstanding scientists doing the most outstanding work. And you've certainly proven to be one of them. So thank you. And I just, um, I really just have one more question. And that is that a lot of our listeners are either going to be women who have ovarian cancer, or they are going to be individuals who have a friend or a loved one who is undergoing treatment for ovarian cancer. And you're the expert. So I, I think it's a real unique opportunity for them to hear from someone like you. Do you have a message that you'd like to share with those folks? So 
right now, ovarian cancer is a scary thing for women because the statistics are what they are, and people are terrified of things that they don't think that they can go and have um, their doctor screen for regularly, and that's real. I do think there's a few things, though, that women should be aware of. One, there are genetic sequencing analyses that can be done specifically for the breast cancer-associated 1 and 2, or BRCA genes. Everyone thinks about them as being breast cancer, and they are, but they also increase the risk of ovarian cancer. And genetic screening, it will dramatically impact the survival of at least 10 to 20 percent of women and potentially their family members if they don't get it, but their family members have that mutation. And this is a thing that people could do right away that maybe would at least let them understand their personal risk or some of their family's members' risk. Um, the second thing to understand and think about are the symptoms. Ovarian cancer is usually detected in women in the postmenopausal years. And if you have persistent bleeding, pelvic pain, things that are no longer you're no longer ovulating and you're no longer menstruating and you're having symptoms like that, please, please be persistent, go to the doctor and really tell them what's happening and don't let them <laughs> tell you it's nothing. And I think um, the third is just to, um, we need research right now. In a tumor type that's hard to detect and there's few prevention strategies and often the tumors become resistant to the drug, we need research in those areas. Prevention, new detection strategies, and new therapies to overcome resistance. So these are three areas we really need to focus on in ovarian cancer. Well, Joanna, we are incredibly excited about what you're doing, for your advice, for your really wonderful research and impact. I just feel really grateful for the trainees who are experiencing your mentoring and training who will go on to be the next generation of ovarian cancer researchers and you know, keep that thick skin. You're pretty awesome and have done some incredible work. And we're looking forward to what's next to come. So be in touch with us. And thanks for thanks for letting us chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate everything the ACS is doing.